Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. listening to Planet Pod with me Amanda Carpenter and welcome to the first of our special series of podcasts produced and hosted jointly by Planet Pod and the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment at Imperial College London, a world-class research centre whose vision is to create a sustainable, resilient, zero-carbon society. In this special series we have a chance to dive deeply into climate science, to hear from leading academics and experts and to explore, unpick, and really understand what is driving the climate change conversation. This is a unique chance to sift fact from fiction, evidence from opinion. We want to equip our listeners with the information to ask the right questions of our policymakers, our politicians, our employers, and of ourselves. We're recording this first programme against a backdrop of mass occupation of London and other cities across the globe by Extinction Rebellion a sign that many people are not just impassioned but feel desperate about the state of the planet and our place on it. In this series of 10 programmes on subjects from getting to net zero to transport from energy to innovation, we step back from the passion and concentrate on the science. Greta Thunberg urges us to listen to the science and that is exactly what we're going to do. I'm delighted to be co-hosting this series with Alicia Gilbert, Director of Policy and Translation at the Grantham Institute, who joined us on a podcast earlier this year. Welcome back. Thank you. Great to have you here. Um, before we get stuck in today's, today's discussion and I introduce our guest, um, I wonder if you can set the scene a bit for us. Um, your role at Grantham is to take the science and help make sense of it for those of you who may not come from a science background. So could you start by maybe saying where are we in the conversation and what has changed in your view in the last six to 12 months, if anything? Well, as you stated in your introduction, we're seeing an increasing amount of public interest in action on climate change. It's something that we've seen in the past, I would say maybe 10 or 11 years ago, there was a surge in public interest. But with the school strikes and the action of Extinction Rebellion, we're really seeing this public pressure being put on governments and businesses to take some serious action to show that we're trying to tackle the climate change problem that we have. In addition to that, I'd say from my position at the Grantham Institute, we're also hearing people from business coming in, interesting different pockets of business from the finance sector through to people at a smaller operation level, trying to understand what their part could be in trying to tackle climate change and understanding how to balance all of the different information around them. They wanted to deliver the right actions, but they don't really know, you know, what materials should I choose? What processes should I choose that are really going to be better for the environment? It's, it's very difficult to unpick all the information around. You're sounding quite optimistic and quite positive. I mean, you are an incredibly optimistic and positive person, I know this, but you're sounding quite sort of positive about this. Do you sense then that we have moved forward a little bit in terms of people's focus and energy, that this is actually an issue that A, we should take seriously and B, we can do something about? There certain are, certainly are, as, I, as you write, I sound positive because I think there are people who feel that way. On the other hand, it's a very complex issue and changing the way we do things to deliver on this is the really difficult part. So I think one of the things that I still observe is a standoff between policymakers or governments, businesses and individuals, all expecting someone else to take that first move to help deliver a solution. But actually, it's something that all of those different groups of people have to do together in sort of a complex dance. 
to deliver the change and that and that's what's really really difficult yeah it's getting everybody to act together and work together but 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 to do that we need to have a shared understanding of what some of the issues are don't we and I think that's where you know I'm hoping during this series of programs we'll get to that because my sense is that people think they know what they're talking about but quite often don't or they have an opinion formed on perhaps less information than they need and and what some of us who are not perhaps climate scientists or many of us who are not climate scientists struggle with unpicking what some of the issues really are so the chance to actually talk to the people in your team and in your wider university sector about what some of those issues might be is really exciting yeah i think so i mean i think we have to remember knowledge is helpful so people do need information to act but often it's not that knowledge is the only barrier so i wouldn't encourage people to say okay spend 10 years of your life now studying the detail of what you should do that's that's not going to deliver action either and all of these people coming to us or thinking about what they can do in their own businesses or their own lives they also hold some of the key they they know how their businesses operate how those processes look what are the inputs and where the levers are to change and where the barriers are and it's about marrying that knowledge of their sector to the indicators and and the general direction of change that's required those two things together is what can deliver the change that we need. Absolutely. So we actually need to, the, the knowledge on both sides of the, of the table. And to kick us off today, um, we're going to be talking about net zero, what that means, what a net zero world might look like. And, and it's a huge privilege to be able to introduce our guest speaker today, Professor Jim Ski, who has a chair in sustainable energy at Imperial College. But that's just the tip of the iceberg, if I may use that analogy, for um, Jim's work. He sits on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, where he's co-chair of Working Group 3. And we're going to ask you about that in a minute. Um, and also he has a background in energy, climate change and technological innovation. He's worked across lots of interdisciplinary settings. So picking up on your point, Alicia, really interesting that you bring lots of different perspectives to the debate. Um, as Director of Policy Studies Institute, Director of the Economic and Social Research Council's Global Environment Change Programme, I could go on and on and on. Um, and you'll have to be able to read about his prestigious and extremely impressive CV on our website. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and welcome to Planet Pod. Okay, thank you. Can we perhaps kick off then by, if it's this possible, a little explanation of what we mean by net zero, because this is a term that's banded about all the time in lots of different forums, and I'm sure a lot of people are misusing it as an expression. Yeah, uh, net zero is actually shorthand for a much longer phrase in the Paris Agreement, which talks about a balance between emissions of greenhouse gases and sinks of greenhouse gases. Now, what we've got a situation, we have human activities and natural processes that put carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. We call these emissions, and we've got other human activities and natural processes which take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and we call these sinks. Basically, net zero is the idea that you have to balance the emissions from human activities with sinks associated with human activities, so that in a net sense, and the word net is incredibly important, we're actually putting nothing into the atmosphere. So that's the essence of net zero. We've got to take as much out of the atmosphere as we put in. Okay, so if we were starting from a completely plain baseline, that wouldn't be a problem, would it? Because we could just say, okay, for every bit of emissions that we create, we'll just create the appropriate bit of sink and they'll, they'll balance each other off. But we're not in that position. Or is no. that too simplistic a way of 
interpreting what you well, just said. Th th that would make it sound too easy, in my <laughs> view, because actually th there are only a limited number of human activities that actually lead to sinks of greenhouse gases at the moment. The, it's the emissions that have dominated, largely associated with the burning of fossil fuels, but also associated with, with the way you, we use land. If we cut down forests, we put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. If we manage agricultural land badly, it will lose the carbon from the soil. That will end up in the atmosphere. So at the moment, the emissions dominate dominate the picture. And the only real way, the, the substantial way in which we're taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere is by planting trees. There are some possibilities for doing that globally, but it's not the only way that you could take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Where are we in terms of how much we've got to take out to, to balance out? I mean, we've, we, there's a lot of talk about um, one point degrees you know, above pre-industrial levels. And so there's a raw, I, my understanding is that we're not starting from a neutral baseline. So we've got some catching up to do as well as some rebalancing from our general activities. How much catching up have we got to do to get to a point where we can start balancing out emissions with carbon sinks? Well, what, what the most recent IPCC reports have said, that if we want uh, to limit global warming to, say, one and a half degrees or well below two degrees, in the words of the Paris Agreement, we need to look at balancing emissions and sinks by roughly the middle of the 21st century. And there's two ways of doing that. You can get down your emissions in the first place, so you have a, a lower level of emissions that you need to balance, or you can start to build up your sinks of greenhouse gases. And what uh, you know, the kind of the modelling and the scientific work that uh, is being carried out is saying, in the early part of the 21st century, the target is to get emissions down, mainly associated with fossil fuel use. The it, perhaps in the second half of the 21st century, you would place uh, more emphasis on taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But this is very con there are very controversial issues because many of the measures associated with removing carbon dioxide to the atmosphere require extra land. And if you do that, there are implications for food security, there are implications for biodiversity and ecosystem services. So it is a, it is a big challenge and there's a trade-off. The, the quicker we get emissions down now, the less we will need to rely on removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere later on. How practical is that? Because you said the middle of the century, and we've a UK target, haven't we, of, of net zero by 2050, and we can discuss whether or not that's realistic. Um, we've got protesters outside on our doorstep saying 2025, which is probably not realistic. Um, but, but, you know, in terms, of, in terms of our general trajectory and our moving towards that, I mean, it, are we... Are we anywhere near it? Are we likely to do it? Is it, is it something that, that we can actually encourage those communities that you were talking about, Alicia, those business communities, to, to stand up and take some action on this? Because it feels like a huge challenge, a global challenge and a, and a UK challenge, but a huge challenge nonetheless. Globally, uh, we are absolutely not on a pathway uh, to achieve achieving these limits. I mean, every year, the United Nations Environment Progr Programme produces something called the GAP 
report, which is the gap between where we want to be and where we're actually headed at the moment. And every year it comes out with a very large gap for about the year 2030 uh, between where we need to be and, and where, where we are. So globally we're not there, but there are good signs that in elements of human activities we are starting to do the right things. And the UK has some good features. It has some features that are not so good, but it also has some good features as well. So the UK has been enormously successful in getting down emissions from its electricity sector, and that has gone faster than the kind of targets uh, that the government and our Committee on Climate Change set. And really the rate of investment in renewable energy and the way that it's driven fossil fuels out of electricity generation has been, been really successful. And we've also got a really good legislative framework in the UK, uh, which lots of countries admire, that give a kind of step-by-step -step process towards 2050 and beyond, which, which is really helpful. The gap is that there are other areas of the UK where we haven't done enough, like in buildings, uh, moving in transportation, which is now the largest source of emissions in the UK. So it, it, it's a patsy picture, but there are positive things to build on. I think that needs to be emphasised. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about that is that there are positive things to build on from different countries as well. So if you look around the world, you do see some countries that are quite good at buildings and energy efficiency, which we haven't been so good at here. So there are bits and pieces that we can learn from. Every country has its strength, as we know, in any case. The real challenge is the time frame that we have. So in an ideal sort of planet, if we had 100 or 150 years to do this, we could let each country do what it's best at and then pick and choose and gradually find our way to net zero. But we actually all need to act on every sector all around the world as quickly as possible to reach the kind of balance of, of, of emissions that, that Jim is describing. And that requires a massive political will, doesn't it? And, and I think, you know, we were very hopeful with the Paris Agreement in 2015. Everybody thought, oh, finally, you know, world leaders have come together, 196 countries or something signed it off. You know, there was a sense that we were moving and there was energy. Is that still there or have we kind of taken our eye off the ball a bit because people have been distracted by politics in all parts of the world, not just here in the UK? Well, let's see. I think the Paris Agreement was a diplomatic triumph. I think that is, is fair to say that. But a diplomatic triumph is not necessarily a triumph in terms of getting on and doing things on the ground. And I think, you know, people have sobered up a little as they realise just what the implications of the Paris Agreement are because they are, they are you know... It needs radical change to be able to deliver the objectives that are in place. And I think many governments are only waking up to that at the moment. And they've woken up to the extent that they will put in pieces of legislation or set aspirational targets for their own countries. But what is still missing are the, the sort of the concrete measures in many areas that would actually get you to these targets. So we have a long, long way to go in terms of political processes, getting regulations, uh, your right kind of fiscal instruments in place. When you say radical, what kind of radical? Well, um, wh 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 where do we begin? I mean, for the Scottish government, for example, has said uh, that no new home uh, that's built after 2024 will be connected to the gas network. Right, so we all use natural gas boilers in our homes mostly. After that, no new home will do it. So the building industry has to come up with a way of building new homes that rely on novel forms of heating that are super efficient houses, electric heat pumps or something like that. We would need to probably make big changes to active travel, walking and cycling, though that 
doesn't make such a big difference. Um, but so, but moving to public transport, moving to electric vehicles, and many countries are saying we should shut down no more no more uh, petrol or diesel engines in private cars after 2030, 2035, or, or whatever year it is. The two biggest things that people can do to improve the climate, both deeply embedded in our lifestyles, are the amount of flying we do and the, the way we eat, because that you're moving towards less livestock intensive diets would be one of the biggest things that would actually change emissions globally. So these are these are very radical things. But that's global because I was reading an article just the other day that said, you know, fine, let's all become vegans. But actually, we've got to look at business and industry and the big polluters. It, you know, even if everyone in the country stopped eating meat in the UK tomorrow, there would still be huge issues around fossil fuel production, around the big petrochemical companies. I mean, it, 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 it's kind of twisting the argument to say it's up to you, the consumer, to take all the responsibility for this by not buying the goods and not eating the meat, surely. I mean, we've got to put pressure on some of those big companies, the kind that you were talking about, Alicia, surely. Yeah, yeah just to say, I, I absolutely would never make the argument that it's all up to individual people to do this. The level of ambition in the Paris Agreement is such that there is no sector of society that can be left out of this. It, it requires action on absolutely everybody's part. So when I picked up the examples of what individual people mm. could do, the, these are what individual people could do. But of course, it needs you know change in the fossil fuel industry, manufacture, manufacturing as well. And very often, making the right step is not just a case of one kind of actor changing. Look at uh, transportation, for example. If you want to move to public transport, we can urge people all we want to get people to take a bus in terms of using the car. But if you live in a rural area with two buses a day, you do not have the possibility of doing that. So it needs coordinated action, it needs individuals willing to make the change, but it needs governments, local authorities, companies to change the kind of the social conditions in the background that allow people to make these choices where perhaps they don't have the ability to make the choices at the moment. And it presumably needs investment, doesn't it, Alicia? We were saying that, you know, business is part of this conversation, but that's a big cry. I mean, if we're going to start having a proper functioning public transport infrastructure um, across the whole of the UK, you know, urban and rural, then that's a significant amount of investment. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a lot of investment across the piece in all the sectors. We also spoke about housing, right? So there'll be have to be investment in housing and also in supportive infrastructure. If you're going to have electric vehicles across the country, you need somewhere to charge those electric vehicles. We should remember that we invest quite heavily in our infrastructure already. If we're going to invest in infrastructure, maybe we need to change the kinds of investments that we're making from what we would have done traditionally. So there will be investment and there will be some more investment than there would have been otherwise in a high carbon society. But a lot of that basic amount of investment is money we would have spent anyway, just on high carbon intensive investment. And I should say that there's a lot of appetite amongst the private sector investors to try and find ways to invest their money wisely in a low carbon or sort of climate change friendly way. And they also need to be presented with proje projects that are credible, that they think will deliver on this, that will also deliver them a return on investment. And that are also something that other businesses or consumers, their user groups, want, which is again why it's this combination of signals that they need from policymakers that this is serious, from consumers and customers that they're going to use this inv investments and this infrastructure um, so that they can put their money in those places. 
Yeah, but surely part of the problem is, I mean, you, you, your ambition at the Grantham is to work to a zero carbon society. And part of the problem surely is that we're in the place we're in because of mass consumerism. I mean, there's no question we just consume too much. We consume too many natural resources. We consume too many products. We buy too much. We waste too much. I mean, surely when you talk about a radical shift, we're not just talking about, you know, not using fossil fuel. We're actually talking about people living very different lives to consume less of everything because that's the only way when we bring consumption down we'll actually bring down the usage that we require from our natural resources well it depends it depends what you what you mean by consumption uh, actually what consumption sometimes refers to physical stuff and at other times it's much more an economic measure now i you know britain basically has a services economy at the moment we we don't manufacture so much relatively as as other countries and frankly economic growth can carry on if we basically have a more service-based approach to it you know if we all give each other massages and aromatherapy and pay each other money for it economic growth will take place but that's not the same as going out and buying stuff that is physical and tangible and needed resources to put it together and it's worth remembering that, you know, certainly in IPCC, we are very much enjoined by all our countries to look at climate change in the context of sustainable development more widely. And that means taking account of lots of other factors like access to energy for people in sub-Saharan Africa, air quality, which can some, some cases be improved if people use gas as a cooking fuel instead of biomass and, and charcoal, which is damaging their health. Uh, there's another sustainable development goal, which is called decent work and economic growth. And that is largely tied at people in developing countries. So the idea that we, we can stop consuming, we do need to grow in or economically in order to bring the benefits of the lifestyles we've had in developed countries to a much wider range of people globally. So it, it's, not the, it's not just climate change, it's all the other things we're trying to do at the same time. Yeah, because we're trying to create a truly sustainable world, aren't we? Not just one in which is overheating, I'm allowed to use that expression, or, or one that's becoming intolerable to live on and, and damaging our, you know, our planet and our species diversity and all of those things. So, so how do we move forward? I mean, you said that Paris was a diplomatic triumph. Are you, are you hopeful that there's enough processes in place to actually shift us to that ambitious goal of 2050 or... Or, you know, or can we even reach it sooner? What can we do to put pressure on the people we need to put pressure on? Well, well the, the, the Paris Agreement you know, has within it a kind of ratchet mechanism where countries come up with pledges for what they're going to do. They consolidate them in something called the global stock take and they work it through the global stock take whether the action taken by countries is enough. And then it's supposed to go back around the circle and the countries up their ambition and feed it in. And that's not the first global stock take is is not is about three, four years in the future at the moment. And that will be the critical point where we actually figure out, you know, whether whether we're we're going to be on, on track at the moment. But we've had an interim report recently, haven't we, from the IPCC, which wasn't as encouraging, perhaps, as some of us had hoped. 
isn't that right? One came out recently that said, you know, we're not really, at this rate, we're not on track to, to, yeah. to hit 1.5 degrees. Yeah, well, ev- everybody knows we're not on track to, to, <laughs> hit one, to hit 1.5 degrees. I mean, the United Nations Environment Programme says so every year. IPCC said so in every report that it's produced over the last 12 months. I mean, absolutely, we're not on track. Governments need to up their ambition, working together with business and trying to mobilise society at the moment. I mean, what I would say, I mean, there's an unprecedented amount of interest in the moment in climate change and it's kind of because the planets have all lined up there's the implementation of the of the paris agreement there are a series of very influential reports from ipcc and you're seeing a kind of mass social movement as well that and i think everything is lining up to push governments in the right direction and although you, you know, perhaps business gets demonised, I think the Paris Agreement did genuinely cause a, 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 re, a real shift in business thinking and in the attitudes to climate change. And I'd pick out two sectors. The oil and gas sector actually have got, got it now in terms of where, where they stand with respect to climate change. They are doing a lot of things. I'm sure many of us would think it's not enough, but, you know, they are doing things. And the other sector is financial services, where there's a huge amount of interest in this, looking at the degree to which investment funds are exposed to the risk of being, you know, investing too much in fossil fuels is potentially an issue. But equally, many of the low-carbon technologies that Elisa was talking about earlier have heavy upfront costs but low running costs, which means you need a bigger level of investment. But they're also very long term. So you've now got people like pension funds and insurance companies getting very interested in investing differentially in low carbon technologies and thinking about their investment portfolios. So the world has absolutely changed since since Paris. We're still not on track to two point five degrees, but we are in a different place from where we otherwise would have been, I think. And I know you want to come back on that, Alicia, but I just wanted to ask you, I have to ask you about your statement about the oil and gas industry mm. taking action. I mean, surely a lot of that is greenwashing. And when you see these stats about Shell investing, I don't know, 300 million mm. into sustainable development out of an annual turnover of 24 billion. I mean, it is just really token round the edges stuff, isn't it? Well, it's it, it's not going to be enough by itself to get you to one and a half or two degrees. Um, you, you know, but that's for sure. But it, but 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 it, it it is moving in the right direction, and there will be impression. It's interesting uh, that that they are starting to slag each other off and try to undermine each other's uh, stated <laughs> ambitions and say, saying, "Well, you're only spending this out of money. We have a different kind of approach," and they're all using different metrics and targets, so you can't really compare them. But, but there is a little bit, a bit of uh, you know, competition to start. Uh, can I say one other thing? There's nothing in an IPCC report that says we have to stop oil and gas immediately. In the 1.5 scenarios that we produced, there is still oil and gas being used in 2050 globally. Less, especially for the case of oil, especially less than than we would at the moment. And not only that, but you still need to make some investment in new exploration to meet the existing the markets that will remain. And there, I guess, there are two reasons for that. We don't use only use oil in in cars. We also use it for making petrochemicals, 
plastics, all that kind of thing. And it's also the biggest growth area for oil at, actually at the moment is heavy is goods vehicles, heavy goods vehicles. If you see a picture of development in sub-Saharan sub Africa, you'll see a land cruiser moving around. You need the, the diesel or the petrol to supply that land cruiser to keep the development process. And when you do the overall sums, you will see that globally you still need an oil and gas industry in even in a 1.5 world, one that is much perhaps smaller than the one we've got at the moment, but it still needs to be there. Okay, that's really interesting. And suddenly that's conjured up a picture in my head of, you know, the wind turbine being pulled on this very large truck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and not, pull, not being pulled by a donkey. Not being pulled right. by a donkey, <laughs> being pulled by a very large HGV. Do you, do you just want to pick up on some of that stuff about business? Because I know that you spend a lot of time, don't you, talking to businesses, to policymakers. Is your sense that they aren't just getting it? You said you feel that they're making changes, but is it enough? Is it quickly enough? Are they as bought into that vision of a net zero world by 2050 as we might be? Well, I mean, I would agree with what Jim said. I think the Paris Agreement pushed a lot of the actors in business to say, what actually should my sector be doing? Um, how could they make a statement that their sector is ready to lead on this issue? Of course, the people that we're hearing from within each sector are the leaders of that sector, but that's positive. They're the people who recognize that this kind of innovation in their business is what's going to deliver them a longer term future than their competitors. And so we we shouldn't be concerned that it's only the front runners that are telling this story. But there are some great examples out there. And I think if we can see governments in their particular national context or regional context, working with these leading businesses in each sector to implement sort of strong policy that sends the direction and some pilots, some examples of what can be done in business, then that can really set us on the right path. So for example, if you look at what the National Farmers Union has said in the UK, they've set themselves some pretty ambitious targets. The way in which they want to get to net zero might be everyone might not be everyone's cup of tea, but the fact that they're willing as a group of farmers to tackle emissions in a sector that's actually very difficult um, is, a, is a great signal. Um, and that enables government to start saying, okay, what, what policy levers do we need to put in place to help, help support you on this journey? Hmm. Jim, how would you answer that question that it's just scientists talking to scientists and actually when it comes down to it, you know, everyday life for people carries on and we've always had the threat of mass extinction. You know, those of us who grew up in the 60s and 70s thought nuclear annihilation was just around the corner and, you know, we've had floods and we're heading for an ice age. How would you actually tackle that and say to people, it isn't just a group of scientists peer-reviewing other scientists. This is actually stuff that everybody needs to get their head around. I, I, I have and to say with my life in IPCC, it never feels like it's scientists talking to scientists. <laughs> oh, that's encouraging. It feels like scientists talking to policymakers, and sometimes I think the scientists have a better grip on the world than the policymakers I'm do. But that's absolutely a, that's certain a, you're right. <laughs> but, that's a, but, but, I mean, I, I do think, you know, that, you know the, level of, the level of interest, uh, you know, at the moment in climate change is very high, and I, I don't know about Elisa, but I've been in many studios in front of a microphone, you know, talking to people about the climate change issue. There's, there's been a really, really big interest. And I think there's also really a bit in how it touches on people's lives. I mean, you didn't mention it in your very generous introduction in the beginning, but at the moment I'm, I'm chairing a just transition commission for the Scottish government at the moment, which is about you how you get the transition to net zero, which in Scotland is 2045 rather than 2050, because we Scots always like to be ahead of the game a little Absolutely. bit. Absolutely. And how to, do it, how to do it in a way that doesn't leave people behind. So, you know, we're running meetings 
things all over Scotland, uh, you know, to engage with people in local communities who are associated with particular sectors to understand, you know, how you make that transition without making sure that, you know, communities are devastated because most of the jobs go in a particular area. So we've looked at things like the power sector and the exit from coal, which has already taken place completely in, in Scotland. We've looked at buildings and transport. We had a very interesting session on the oil and gas industry in Aberdeen, for example. Uh, we were talking about what that does for the local economy, thinking about the position of the North Sea oil and how that matches with a, with a, a net zero transition. So I think, you know, the conversations are now taking place and it's getting embedded. And again, if I might do my little Scottish uh, little boast, the next programme for government for Scotland for the next financial year has four sections. And the first section is entitled Ending Scotland's Contribution to Climate Change. So this is getting very much embedded in the, in the system. That requires real long-term thinking, doesn't it? And some consistency of, of policy and government. And we probably at the, at the moment, particularly in the UK, um, you know, in other parts of the world, but let's think about the UK at the moment. In the UK, we are incapable of long-term thinking. I mean, we're in such a tiz, generally, about uh, the, uh, what's going on and the politics of the UK is so damaged. H have we got that political will for long-term thinking and making those kinds of commitments that, that our colleagues in Scotland are making? Well, obviously, I don't know when this goes out, but everybody's mind is obviously on the 31st of October, you know, which before is... Before then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So, but, but, I mean, I find it very interesting in the current political climate, okay, in, in spite of all the turbulence we have at the moment, all the mainstream political parties are making very strong comments about climate change. And maybe politicians need one sort of long-term issue that stands above you know, the, the, the fray of current politics that they can you know, sound ambitious, lofty-minded about. And climate change appears to be that issue at the moment. So in that sense, I'm, I, I am quite optimistic about it. The Climate Change Act is kind of working. We've met all our, met all our carbon budgets. We've got a net zero target for 2050, which is legislated in the last few months. Uh, you know, so, so we have the right conditions. And if we can get out through the tunnel that we're in at the moment, I think we are potentially in a good place and there is the political will to move on it. Yeah, I would agree with Jim about that. I think also globally you see lots of countries distracted by significant and important local dis decisions or discussions or tensions. But underneath that all, some of these public movements we see about climate change are global. They're global. And I see consistently people say, actually, we need to be thinking long term. And that's hopefully something that the political forces can come back to very shortly. <laughs> Yeah. Can I just say one other thing? We focused a lot on what governments can do and what, what major businesses can do. I mean, I think one of the lessons, especially in the United States, where obviously the federal government has kind of withdrawn from climate policy, is how much is being done at cities and state level to advance the climate change agenda. And I think the, the case of cities is particularly interesting. You know, more and more of the world's population is going to live in cities in the future. And cities need to plan infrastructure for people decades ahead. And they, they don't have the, the, the luxury of thinking in silos to the same extent as national governments. They've got to join up energy, transportation, waste, all the different kind of systems in urban. And cities are genuinely starting to think about that and build it into their long-term planning. 
So I think just that it's not just about national governments. It's it's a much wider set of actors that are engaged. Yeah, I'd absolutely concur with that. I mean, the two things that spring to mind is the, the Rockefeller Resilient Cities Programme, which, which I'm sure you're familiar, and the stats there about the majority of cities being actually on the coast and therefore hugely at risk of, of climate change and, and, and rising sea levels. And the other is a much more local example. I was at a a meeting with XR earlier this week and, and there was someone from, from North Tyne talking about how they were trying to decarbonise the city and increase local carbon neutral transport. They were putting in e-bikes, very practical things like you know places to lock your bike when you get onto the metro. So really small actions that are actually part of a much bigger, connected, tied together approach, which is what we need, isn't it? And it comes back to your point earlier, doesn't it? About we need everyone to be working together collaboratively to achieve this. And the non-silo thinking is really, really important. Do you have a kind of call to action for individuals beyond perhaps eating less meat? <laughs> you know, what is it that people can do Where, wherever you sit in your um, economy, whether that's a local or national economy or just within your community? What are the practical things that people can yeah. do? Yeah, and just to say IPCC doesn't do calls for action. We have to leave that to the... To, you can to, do to, that to, wearing your non-IPCC hat. Uh, no, like. no, you introduced me as IPCC. So that, <laughs> that, 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 that's, Read I'm, the IPCC report. To, that's your yeah, call to yeah, action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, but I think in terms of... We can always phrase these things in a, in a different way. I mean, the kind of actions that would make a difference in order to limit warming to two degrees. He's or, been hanging or out with the Scientists turned diplomat. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. It's how you say it that really makes a difference. But I mean, I, I mentioned the two big things about about flying and diet. But all you know, all the usual things. The next time you have to replace the heating system in your home, you know, do think about another way rather than a gas fire boiler to do it, because there are solutions out there. Um, you know, insulating your house more to you know, to, to 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 bring the benefits to yourself, because you'll have lower bills. Uh, and many of the things you know, like active, active travel, it's not just a benefit in terms of the planet. You're not doing it for somebody else. You're doing it for yourself because you'll have a healthier life as well. It. it will, you know, on a climate climate action pro- prolongs active life. You to pick up an old uh, advertisement, uh, you know, from the UK. <laughs> have you got one, Alicia, that you might put out um, there? Yeah, I think think about things as an individual in your personal life, as Jim was talking about, but also in your professional life. So people all have all kinds of different jobs and think about what your organization contributes apart from their core mission. How do they function and you know what role could they play that you might not have thought about it in a climate change context before. And one of the other things we always recommend that people do is make sure that your voice is heard. If this is something that is important to you, it's actually really important that occasionally you tell your local authority if they've made some changes that enable you to do the right thing or declare a climate emergency to support that. Say that because otherwise your councillors aren't going to be that interested in making these changes if they don't think that they're voting public care. So that's quite a simple thing you can do. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important. I mean, and, and there are probably things that we could do that are quite practical around your point about increasing those carbon sinks. I mean, there's a Woodland Trust campaign, isn't there, at the end of November, which is the big climate fight back to encourage people to plant a million more trees. Now, I know trees are quite a long-term investment and we plant your tree and it probably won't be doing a huge amount to act as a carbon sink in its early years but just getting people to do that planting trees looking at perhaps trying to offset emissions as well I mean I don't mean offset in the formal sense I mean is there value in doing that 
Well, 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 well there's value in it, but if, if we were to look at that on a global scale, it's not going to add up to big numbers, but every, you know, every, every little bit will help. Uh, the, the thing about urging, urging planting trees is that there are inappropriate ways of planting trees that don't help us in other ways. So we need to be very careful about it. So you know, having vast plantations that displace people from land that might have been used for livestock grazing or, or something in, in say, sub-Saharan Africa is not a way to go about it. There are cleverer ways of being doing about it. So think about it very carefully. If we're looking at planting planting trees that restore more traditional woodlands in you know in in a in Europe, for example, then that's great. It's not going to make a huge difference globally, but it's it's a good thing to do for all sorts of reasons, not all of which are related to climate change, because <laughs> it's good for biodiversity, yeah. uh, you know, recreational opportunities, all the rest of it. And maybe just going back to something, Jim explained to us at the very beginning, to reach net zero, we do have to start by reducing our greenhouse gas emissions and then bolting onto that any of the sinks that we actually still need and require. So planting trees is a nice action to take, but let's not go into this with the wrong impression that let's just make as many sinks as we can and we can ignore the scale of our emissions because if we don't start turning the tide on our scale of emissions soon, it's not going to be solvable. Yeah, emissions are the key to getting to net zero. And as a net zero world... Um, you know, is it is it, is it better? I mean, we've got a vision for the future in net zero, which is actually this is a world that is not only habitable but 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 nicer to live in. It could it could be better, and we could be healthier. I mean, again, it, it's a question of, of you know how we make the the choices we make about how we reach it. And always now, IPCC doesn't assume that there's a particular way in society develops. It looks at different ways that society might develop because we don't know. And uh, we look at climate action against different backdrops, and that might imply different kinds of climate action. So, uh, I mean, you know, we're looking out to the whole of the 21st century, you know, sort of three generations, basically. We need to be flexible and, you know, learn from the lessons of the, of the things that we try out. Because, frankly, we do not know what the world in 2050 is going to look like, never mind 2100. And maybe building on that, of course, we know that already today, if we look around the world, people's idea of what a good life looks like and feels like and a happy, nice place to live looks like is is really different in different parts of the world. That will still exist, that diversity of what cities look like and what lifestyles are like around the world, that ought to still exist. So those can be lots of different kinds of low carbon lifestyles that appeal to different cultures and contexts. Yeah, there's no one size fits all and we shouldn't have any kind of you know, drive to, to make everybody conform to a particular way of being, should we? So this is about accepting difference and welcoming that and understanding that what works for different communities is as long as it's contributing to that overall global ambition of trying to keep the world a place that's safe and harmonious to live in. And I think we should Capital. remember some of these changes aren't things that really people notice day to day. They're big changes because they're different, but they're not necessarily changes you might notice every day. So the example I often talk about is losing your gas boiler in your house. So that's a big change if everybody in the UK doesn't have a gas boiler anymore. And whilst making that change, there are probably quite a lot of people who will feel a deep attachment to their gas boiler that they may not have manifested before. But afterwards, if they've got a house that's comfortable and is heated appropriately for the place where they live and cooled appropriately, then the loss of that gas boiler might not be something that they miss or actually even notice. 
Yeah. Can, can I ju just reflect on that? Because I have no emotional attachment to my gas boiler at all. <laughs> I mean, for me, what you have is a box on the wall that helps to keep your house warm. And whether it's a gas boiler or a heat pump doesn't really terribly matter much. It's the box on the wall that keeps you warm. Yeah, I don't think we should wax too lyrical about gas boilers. Thank you both <laughs> so much for, for, for kicking off this series. And, and Alyssa, we've got some really exciting guests lined up, haven't we, for the other programmes as we explore some of the things that you've just set in context for us, Jim, and in, in perhaps greater detail. So a huge thank you to you, Jim, for being with us and taking time out of what I know is an incredibly hectic schedule. Um, and to you too, for Alicia, for, for joining Planet Pod. And tune in to the next series of Planet Pod Grantham Institute podcasts. Thanks. Thank you. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programs. Thanks for listening.